Steve Fuller is a philosopher at the University of Warwick and the author of multiple books, including Post-Truth, Knowledge is a Power Game. This is Steve Fuller. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. All right. I'm here with Steve Fuller. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. Uh, so you wrote a very interesting book that is great for our times uh, called Post-Truth, Knowledge as a Power Game. And I guess just to get the ball rolling here, obviously politicians, uh, you know, media figures have lied for, you know, since the beginning of time. What makes something post-truth? Well, I think that the key thing to keep in mind with post-truth is a kind of a breakdown of authority with regard to what people regard as the truth. So there's no longer the kind of uniform standards that there used to be. So, so this idea of uh, you know, not believing in experts is a great example of post-truth. And um, so there's a kind of crisis of authority going on, uh, not just in politics, but uh, I would say across the board in society, certainly within uh, you know, larger domains of knowledge with regard to expertise as well. Uh, and the post-truth condition is basically about that, uh, and um, and there, you know, we can continue to talk about what what is the cause of that because I actually don't think that the post-truth condition is something that we're going to uh, recover from, in a sense. In other words, we're never going to go back to a truth condition uh, where people, you know, know who to trust and all the rest of it. Right. Um, I tend to think that post-truth is sort of. Uh, is sort of indicative of the kind of democratic, uh, the democratic nature of our society, basically, whereby now we have got the most educated people in the world. Um, they have the most access to information. They also have the greatest opportunities to express themselves. Social media just being kind of the latest technological angle on this, but but this has been a growing issue uh, throughout the, uh, the, the this century, 21st century, uh, ever since the internet became the standard way by which people got information. And so all of that is, I would say, generally speaking, part of democratization. And post-truth is kind of the outcome of that. So the democratization of truth. Yes, I, that's, a, that's a simple way to put it, but it's sure. basically correct. It, it, is, is there a danger there when, for instance, you mentioned the uh, decline in trust of expertise? Certain issues, I don't know how to build a bridge. I don't know how to predict the future of climate. It seems as though there, in order for society to function well, uh, and part of the reason why this post-truth condition disturbs a lot of people, is that when you have that decline in trust of uh quote unquote, worthy experts, it makes society hard to function, no? In some respects, yes. Uh, I do think there are certain kinds of issues where it's important that you might say everyone's on the same page right. because uh, decisions that I take individually just don't affect me alone, but end up affecting you, right? So for example, uh, if you think about the vaccination issue, yes, right? I mean, there is a sense in which there is a wide variety of opinion in the public about how safe these things are and all the rest of it. Uh, but there is, you know, obviously grounds for thinking that there should be something like a uniform policy on the matter, uh, because the decisions that individuals take end up having impact on others. And so in those circumstances, it becomes important that there is some kind of common policy, right? And so you may have to overrule under those circumstances what particular individuals think. But I think for a lot of other stuff, okay, uh, like for example, who do you hire to build your bridge, right? Uh, and, and stuff like that, uh, where in a sense, the person who takes the decision is the primary bearer of the consequences of the decision, then I think uh, we are entering into a world where people are much more comfortable with that proposition. Namely, uh, yes, uh, I may not uh, rely on the person who you think is the most expert for doing something, but then it's my decision and I'll take the consequences. I think people are, this is part of the democratization process, right? Whereby not only are people, as it were, taking decisions for themselves about things that they would have delegated to others in the past, but they're also uh, accepting of the consequences of the decisions they take. 
right? So when people, for example, refuse to take the most advanced cancer treatment, but instead, you know, go for uh, alternative medicine, right? Um, right? Um, very often these people die, but these people uh, in a sense want to take the decision that is compatible with the kind of lives they think they've been leading. And in that respect, then the more intrusive aspects of, of cancer therapy, right, uh, violates that. And so arguably these people would actually rather die, but take a decision that is compatible with the kinds of lives they're leading. And you see, I think this is applying more and more to many more spheres of life. I think we're kind of used to it a little bit with regard to medicine. Yeah. Uh, you know, so for example, in the UK, the National Health Service actually funds um, some alternative medicine, if that's what, you know, uh, people want, right? Um, but I think this is going to become a more general pattern across wider and wider spheres where, uh, where in the past experts would have been automatically trusted. Right. And medicine is an interesting example because, of course, in the midst of a pandemic, when people say, well, I'm not going to wear a mask because mm -hmm. hey, I've listened. And, and there, there are legitimate doctors who have said, hey, actually, uh, perhaps covering your face is, is not uh, the best solution. But it feels as though people having I mean, ultimately, we do live in a society. So people's individual well, choices yes. have an impact. This is on like Yes, this is the this is like the vaccine issue, right? I mean, it seems to me with the with the pandemic, I mean the the the, prop, the pandemic is an interesting kind of test case because it does seem to me that you do need uniform policy. You just can't have um, everyone doing their own thing because of the consequences of your own actions for other people. Um, and so the, the you know the the mask wearing, for example, um, you know the social distance, all this kind of stuff, right? It's not so much about you; it's about other people and your decisions end up affecting them. But my point is that, yes, there are such things. There are such things and political decisions need to be taken, right? As they have been taken more or less in lots of countries around the world with regard to the pandemic. But I would say this is kind of a minority of, uh, of, the, of the kinds of knowledge-based decisions that, that people would like to take for themselves individually. And, and I think, you know, post-truth is about that kind of empowerment. Is there, um, and, and I'm not saying there is, I'm, I'm just asking openly, is there a kind of fundamental contradiction there where we can say, okay, there are certain, there's a certain subset of cases that we can, we can absolutely say, hey, th these decisions have to be taken out of the hands of individuals and put into the, the, the hands of experts. Um, I mean, who, who governs what choices the, like falls into that category? Well, I think this is a political decision at the end of the day, okay? So I don't think this is a scientific decision. Okay. I think this is a political decision which, has, which, which uh, is a result of our knowledge of the, of the way in which the consequences of our actions interact with each other. But, you know, and, and science, of course, can inform us about the way the consequences of our actions, you know, interact. But at the end of the day, it's a political decision you know, with regard to, uh, you know, how tightly uh, do you enforce the mask wearing rule, right? What kind of social, you know, in other words, a lot of that kind of the policing of the rules, right. uh, which vary considerably across countries, even if the countries nominally have the same kinds of policies, okay? Um, and, and part of the politics of that, right, has a lot to do, again, with the kinds of uh, living expectations of people in society. So this is a real problem, for example, in the United Kingdom. Uh, because United Kingdom is a very traditionally civil libertarian country, right? So even though we do have all these rules about mask wearing and social distancing and so forth, it's actually, the, the government has been very uh, reluctant to impose heavy fines and come down really brutally police style like they do in France, for example, um, because it's just not part of the culture. So there's, but, so this is a political decision at the end of the day, right? What those rules will be uh, and how how they will be enforced. And of course, science informs, you know, the urgency with which this kind of thing needs to be taken. But it is a political decision at the end when it gets down to it. Right. And, and fair enough. I guess part of what, what troubles me is that when we talk about knowledge as a power game, and mm. uh, I, I want to get to um, your, your, your new book, The, the Player's yeah. Guide to the Post-Truth post Condition. Um, where at one point you say that you know, history can be written by the losers in, in this scenario. Um, 
but it feels as though if if knowledge is a subset of power, then mm -hmm. the people who are going to control that are going to be, you know, at, at that point, why not just win the power game? A am I wrong? Well, in a sense, you that is kind of what you need to do. Um, I, the interesting thing, of course, is that knowledge is a funny business. And so as a as a kind of, um, you might say, terms of engagement for power, um, it, it, it is a, actually much more unpredictable. You know, so in other words, someone might start very powerfully in the sense of having a lot of resources on their side to kind of get their point of view across very strongly. Uh, but these things do backfire from time to time. It's not guaranteed. Um, that uh, you know the people who have the deepest pockets, you know, and the loudest voices end up winning. I mean, it's a much trickier thing, largely because knowledge, the part of the game-like quality of knowledge, right, isn't just the fact that there are these contesting players with alternative frameworks, but the point is our knowledge is always imperfect, right? So there's uncertainty built into the knowledge itself, right? And that gives it so so you know, it's it's one thing to say that the players might not be equally uh, sort of. Uh, poised with regard to the amount of resources they have. Some may be much more powerful than others, but at the same time, there's also, as it were, the knowledge, is, the, the knowledge that they have in relation to something beyond themselves, right? Be it the external world or whatever you want to call it, sure. right? And, and that is always fallible and uncertain, right? So um, it seems to me that there's a lot of, there's lots of levels of uncertainty and risk that are involved here. So it's not so straightforward uh, you know, who ends up winning, as it were, right? This is one reason why, you know, the, the losers can sometimes rewrite history, right? Um, uh, so I, I think it's a, the, the point, however, is that when we're talking about stuff like, let's say, the pandemic, right? Um, the real battle is not to figure out, you know, exactly uh, what the virus is about, but rather the framing about the significance of the virus with regard to the way in which we conduct our lives and you know everything else. So I'll give you an example, okay? One, one idea that was floated very early on in the pandemic uh, was herd immunity, right. okay? Herd immunity, um, and, and herd immunity is a quite a, a, a normal concept actually in epidemiology, uh, and, and it basically, it, you know, and it, and it predates vaccines, right? It's basically the idea that if you get some kind of new disease hitting a population, right, uh, of course, um, you know, the, the individuals in the population will be affected by the disease to a varying degree, right? Some will hardly get it at all. They'll just carry it, but it won't have any kind of symptoms. Others will be killed by it, okay? Um, and then over time, of course, those who get it a little bit develop a kind of immunity, and the ones who were really vulnerable will have died. And so over time, you end up getting herd immunity just naturally, right? I mean, you just kind of lose people along the way. You lose part of the population. But the ones who remain, right, uh, by virtue of remaining, right, are immune. And, you know, and vaccines, in a sense, are, are trying to replicate that natural process, you know, by minimizing the number of people who have to end up dying, okay? Right. Um, but if we lived in a world where death from disease was more acceptable, right? So that if we tolerated higher levels of death, right? And we just sort of accepted, right? Uh, that a certain, you know, so however, whatever percent of people die of COVID, 1.5% or whatever, um, you know, if we accepted that as acceptable, as normal, right? Uh, then we wouldn't be putting in a lot of these kinds of social restrictions and so forth. Um, that would be to play the COVID game differently, okay? Right. Um, and, but we don't play it that way. We actually put a lot of value on life and that ends up affecting kind of what the COVID strategy can and cannot be. And so this is when, at that point, then the notion of herd immunity gets kind of taken off the table, even though it is sort of a relevant concept for talking about this stuff. Mm. I, I, I see. So in other words, you can have something that we might call truth about the virus or about, you know, nature and the form of climate change, but then the real battle becomes over what do we do about this? Yeah, climate change is another good example, right? Um, I mean, people always focus on people who deny climate change. That's not really where, where, the, uh, where the action is. In a sense, the action is more about um, accepting climate change and then the so what question, right? right. Because there are going to be some people who 
who basically accept, well, climate's always changing and we always adapt to it one way or another. And so we just need adaptation strategies, right? Um, we don't have to go the full Greta Thunberg route, you know, and, and, you know, kill carbon emissions altogether and everything and kind of in some sense roll back industrialization. Okay, so, so the point here is that you can accept the phenomenon of climate change, you can accept all the data, um, and yet you can, you can kind of approach the matter quite differently. Uh, and, and it seems to me that's where the, the, the political framing becomes very important. Um, and again, part of what plays into the climate change stuff is the fact that the models that we use, especially when we start projecting into the future, right, then the uncertainties grow, right? Uh, and so, you know, the, the models at the moment may say that we're going to reach some kind of tipping point in the year 2050, but the models themselves change every 15 years, okay? And so, you know, before we actually are going to hit the tipping point, we may actually end up having a different kind of model that predicts something different. And so there's a question about, you know, what kinds of policies can you make on the back of a sort of science that has that kind of fluidity in terms of, you know, you know if you look at it as a long-term project. So that's part of the game too. Right. And, and it's interesting because in some ways that that is what a lot of people who either deny or uh, sort of water down the climate science would say is, hey, you know, how can you possibly my the weatherman can't even predict what's going to happen seven days from now. How can you predict what's going to happen? Well, I mean, I see I wouldn't put it quite that way. It is the point <laughs> that one shouldn't vulgarize the point. Right. I mean, sure. but I do think if you look at the track record. Of, of modeling, especially modeling based sciences, where a lot has to do with what your, you know, your initial conditions are, what kinds of things are you presuming to be actually active ends up kind of determining what the model produces, right? And of course, as our, our knowledge of climate changes, those, those inputted factors may change quite significantly over time. Yeah. Um, and so the question I would say from a policy standpoint is to what extent do you wanna put a lot of resources, a lot of eggs in the basket of a science that actually does, is quite open-ended and can change, right? How many, do you wanna put into place irreversible policies on the back of a science, right? That, you know, if you look at the kind of commitment you'd be making over the next 20, 30 years, what is the likelihood that the science itself will have changed by that time? You see, I think this is kind of more the, the way you need to think about this. You know, so you have to think at two levels at once. Right, so you know it, it is it is absolutely true, right? That uh, if you look at our best models of climate change, there's going to be some kind of tipping point, let's say 2040, 2050, whatever, right? And you grant that as the as the state of play now, and that is what most of the scientists believe. But then there's a second order point, and this is where the gaming comes in, namely, what's the likelihood that that's going to remain the same opinion by the time you get to 2050? Right. Right, and if there and and if this is a science that has a lot of change built into it, right, then you might wonder how much should I trust what people think now? It's not like that what they think now isn't the best thing to think now, but to what extent is that a reliable predictor of what you will be needing to think in 2050? I see. Yeah. Well, what are your thoughts on that? I think, let's put it this way. I think um, with a lot of these kinds of issues like climate change, uh, I'm very much into um, coupling the issue. So in other words, that whatever policy you take, it will be a good policy, even if the climate change stuff ends up not being too, even if, if, even if that prediction of 2050 ends up falling flat, nevertheless, the policies you will have taken because of that are still good, okay? You see, and, 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 and uh, you know, so, so, my, tended, so my, my feeling about this uh, is that um, even if you don't believe the world's going to come to an end in 2050, there is a general view that it's just better, uh, you know, to go green, right, with regard to our industrial base. And so electric cars and, you know, recycling, you know, energy sources, recyclable energy sources and maybe even nuclear, who knows, you know, all of those kinds of things are generally kind of the wave of the future. And if, and, if the, and if the climate apocalypse provides a kind of incentive to do that quicker, then that's not bad because even if the climate apocalypse doesn't happen, we probably would have wanted to make those changes to the, the way in which we manufacture goods anyway. You see, so I would do that kind of coupling. Yeah, I, and I think that's, that's probably a good way to pitch it as well, 
to, to mm-hmm. people who are skeptical. Yeah, yeah. Because see, the thing is, the skepticism stuff. I mean, it's it's kind it's kind of bad and corrosive of public discourse. Is if it's a kind of absolute, like you know, if 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 skeptics are are operating with a kind of impossibly high level of certainty that they need to have before they do something, right? right um, th- then that's a nightmare. You don't want that, right? And and the problem is, of course, all of the all of the kind of all the science that we have on anything that's of an interesting policy nature is usually about something pretty complex. And as soon as you've got something that's complex, whether you're talking about pandemic or climate change, there's going to be uncertainties all over the place. Okay, but you can't let that completely dominate your thinking. Right. And I think the skeptics, in a way, want, uh, you know, want the uncertainty thing to dominate the thinking. But you can't do that. You still have to make policy. Um, You see, so um, this is where I think you also this coupling is the way to go on this. And even though we are talking about policy issues, I suppose, as you kind of alluded to in the beginning, this phenomenon of, of post-truth is sort of beyond politics, in a sense. Oh, yeah. It's not confined yeah. to one side. Well, yes. And I think, you know, when you start to, uh, so when you start to take seriously, because here's the thing, right? I mean, it's an irony almost. Um, in, you know, starting uh, really with the uh, late 19th, early 20th century, we start to see science more and more involved in an explicit level in policymaking in the sense that scientific arguments get used to justify various kinds of political decisions, whether we're talking about economics or medicine or whatever, especially with the rise of the welfare state. Um, And of course, the reason why science became implicated in all this stuff was because people thought science provided, you know, the the most solid form of knowledge, the best form of knowledge and all the rest of it, right? Uh, But of course, the areas in which the science was being used to justify decisions were basically very complicated areas that actually took you very far away from the chalk and blackboard laboratory world, right? Where you're, you know, you're talking, because most science, the most, you know, reliable form of science is one where the scientists can actually control the conditions under which the knowledge is produced. I mean, right? I mean, uh, and, and the problem, of course, with the kinds of policy making that happens in the real world is you don't have control over all the variables, right? There's, there's a lot of uncertainty built into the situation. And yet science is implicated more and more in those kinds of decisions. And so one of the consequences of this, and this, is hap- this happens a lot when, uh, you know, in the pandemic stuff, whenever you get some kind of medical expert talking about, you know, the likelihood of this, that, and the other thing, right, is you, you kind of see the uncertainty of the science dealing with these matters pretty naked, right. okay? Um, and, and, and it's, you know, and it's not because the scientists are incompetent or whatever, right? Because, no, it's actually the nature of science when it encounters a complex situation. And see, the post-truth condition in a way, you know, registers that. And, and I think we're coming, we're, we're, we're coming to get used to it in a way. It's, it's changing our understanding of science, right? That, that the, uh, you know, the, the, the earlier notions of science is somehow a source of sort, certitude in a world that otherwise is just full of conflicting opinions and no way of resolving things. Well, that is beginning to dissolve, okay? And that doesn't mean, you know, that then anything goes, but it does mean that there is a greater responsibility on the part of individuals and policymakers to make up their own mind about what to think, right? The sciences can't give you the answer. And my only qualm with, with this whole idea is you are very knowledgeable, very thoughtful, very articulate, and very measured in everything you're saying. And a lot of people who even not consciously accepting the, this post-truth condition will just sort of shrug at you know climate science and say, ah, I don't trust them, these these pointy head scientists, what do they know? And they're not necessarily acknowledging your point, which is accepting the consequences of, of those beliefs and those actions. Um, and and w- when you said earlier, not, not to vulgarize the point, a lot of people do take this point and vulgarize it. I mean, where I, I you, 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 of course, you know what I'm referring to, but is there is part of what you're doing with these books to try and take a phenomenon that already exists and that it's not going away and sort of give it um, a better philosophical grounding or, or 
you know. Yeah, so I mean that's a good way to look at it, actually. Um, and 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 in a way, the uh, you might say that the audience for for the book for these books. Um, so so I don't see so I don't see myself as let's say providing uh, rationalization or intellectual justification. Um, for the kind of people you were just alluding to in your, in your sure, work. Yeah. R rather, what I see myself doing is perhaps educating people who, like, you know, people who are, who are, who see themselves as experts and in a way are very revolted by these vulgar characters who are doubting climate change and doubting experts generally and so forth and saying, you, you actually, there's actually an epistemology going on there with what these people are doing and you need to kind of engage with it in a kind of serious way. Because I do think part of the problem here um, is that the, uh, the, the experts, the so-called experts, um, uh, have a certain, they do have a certain kind of contempt and sometimes fear of um, the masses, if you want to call them, these people who are now voicing their opinions in a way they would have kept quiet before. Uh, and, and so what this does, so, so I think there's, there, there is, um, sometimes some very bad science communication going on from the science side, for example, right? Where, 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 where in a sense, they're, they're not, they, they constantly diagnose what um, skeptics think as just ignorance, right? And if that's your starting position, you're not going to kind of make it to the democratic world we're living in. And I think this is the thing that the expert, the expert class, whatever you want to call them, um, that they really do need to learn is that we are living in a different world, um, and it and, and part of the uh, part of the con. See, here's the thing: there is a kind of conceit, you might say, um, among academics, in particular scientists, philosophers, um, that uh, once people are educated and they live in a democracy where they have the right to express themselves, that they will all think like us, yeah, yeah. right? That they will all think like us. Once they have the opportunity, the exposure to the education, and they have the freedom to express themselves, right, they will come to know our truth. It'll be their truth then. It'll be the same truth. Yeah. And this is rubbish, right? Uh, and, and, and I think this is the less, in a way, you know, if I have to teach the, teach the, uh, the experts something in the post-truth books I've written, it's that point, yeah. right? That, that in a sense, there is always going to be contestation because the contestation, you know, at the end of the day, the disagreements are not actually over the facts, you know, though you might say, you know, every now and then somebody like Donald Trump doesn't know the facts or whatever, but that's not really the issue. The issue is the contextualization, right? The contextualization of the facts, the framing of the facts, right? Uh, within which, right, one group of people may value certain kinds of facts over other kinds of facts, whereas the other group, does the reverse, you see? And there you don't have to deny the facts as facts, right? But, but, the, but the thing I think that experts, the expert class needs to realize is that what makes, that their expertise comes actually not from their knowledge of the facts, but from the way they frame the facts that other people then accept, hmm. right? So it's their framing. Um, you know, so what is it that, you know, so, so it isn't just facts, but it's like, which facts are more important than whatever other facts? Right. Right. I mean, yeah. And, and, and that and that you see, you know, so if you look at with the pandemic, for example, where we're getting statistics of all kinds every day, just being thrown at us right, left and center. Right. Various groups pick on one or the other statistic to, you know, to their advantage to make their points. Right. Uh, and, and that is the kind of thing where the contestation comes in. Right. Where someone points to this statistic and the other one points to that statistic. Both statistics may be right. Right. You know, at, you know, but then they're saying this one's more important than that one. And that's where the issues begin. Right. And, and also the that different framings can be plausible to to, you know, like I've listened to the Ben Shapiro podcast before. Uh, I'm not a I'm not a right wing guy at all, but I listen to it and I would love to just dismiss it out of hand. But there are points that he makes that I do have to pause and think about it and to see, okay, how, if I disagree, how do I disagree? Because it's not immediately evident. I mean, there's a reason that millions of people will listen to this and use it as, as juice for their arguments in the real world. Um, yeah, no, no, that's exactly right. 
Um, and so this is where I think, you know, in terms of if, if one were thinking about um, post-truth literacy, if we could call it that, right? In other words, how to, uh, you know, how to be a savvy player in the post-truth world. Right. Uh, one of the things you'd want to have is a diversity of sources on a matter of interest to you, right? So in other words, you don't want to just be stuck with Ben Shapiro's framing, um, right. right? And that's, I think, kind of, you know, if you, you, you want to talk about a problem uh, with the kind of world we live in now, and this is the kind of thing that often gets discussed in the context of filter bubbles and echo chambers and things like that, where basically, right, people, are, you know, are getting all their information from one kind of source. And so whenever they do, so they will recognize a statistic or a fact or something. And, and I find this all the time, actually, when I deal with my students, okay, because the students are very interested in, in the news, and they're very interested in what's going on in the world, they have lots of ways of accessing it. And so they're actually very familiar, um, very often with, with, you know, stuff that's happening, you know, they, they, they understand the facts of the situation, you might say, at the basic level. Yes. But then when you ask them some questions about, you know, uh, you know, why do you think this is the case? You know, why is this fact this, right? And then you start to see their framings come out, right? Uh, which gives you a sense of how they acquired knowledge of the fact. Uh, and then you begin to realize, oh, I see, you've been reading a conspiracy theory website, you know, or something like that, um, right? Because so, conspiracy theory websites, by the way, um, you may have, some students of mine recently have been, been looking at this one called Reset. I don't know if you've heard of this, Reset. I, I've, I've heard of it, yes. Yeah, yeah. So this is about how the pandemic is a big Davos conspiracy, basically. Right. right? And that the vaccine is going to plant silicon chips in us and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Uh, now, the thing that's interesting, if you watch the, the video that's been circulating, um, is a lot of the individual facts, you know, like Bill Gates being interested in vaccines and, you know, all this kind of stuff. There are a lot of individual facts uh, that are, of course, true about who manufactures vaccines. And, you know, I mean, they're the basic facts. They're part of the public record. But the interesting thing about the conspiracy theories, of course, is the way they put the facts together, right? right? And then they have all this kind of implicit, usually causation by innuendo kind of thing, right? Um, about how all these things are supposed to fit together as some kind of grand scheme to colonize humanity. Um, and that's the part, of course, that one might want to object to. But the point is, if you're looking at the individual facts that they are talking about, individually, these facts are pretty much true. Uh, you know, it's just, you know, and that's why, you know, you end up in this situation where you could be talking to a bunch of students who are very well informed at the factual level about what's going on. But then when you start to get them to explain stuff to kind of say what causes what and you know, what do you think the nature of this is and what the significance is, then you'll get widely divergent views. And that tells you where, where they're getting their information. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts on why certain framings like the conspiracy paranoid style are more uh, like they, they seem to warp people's brains and personalities in a way that like just to give you an example i was on a balloon ride in cappadocia turkey and there was an american guy in there who while we're on the balloon ride was telling me about this this great reset and you know mm -hmm. check out project 21 i'm like dude like you're on a balloon in turkey why are you t like <laughs> just enjoy the moment you know and it it seems like certain framings have a tendency to become all consuming it Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, usually these conspiracies, in a way, are conspiracies against humanity, right? So you should be interested, too, in this conspiracy, because right. it's about you just as much as about this guy, right? Uh, and and he's, he's, he's kind of passing the word to you. He's doing you a favor, right? If you believe the conspiracy <laughs> theory, he's, he's, a, he's awakening you, right? right. Um, and, and, and I think that that is the spirit in which a lot of this, this is how it becomes contagious, right? I mean, conspiracy theories usually have very broad reach in terms of who is potentially being taken in by it, um, you know, and so I think that's that's part of it, too. And, and I have to say, by the way, I mean, you know, now kind of speaking a bit as a sociologist, I, I do think that in a world where, um, you know, people are interact with each other increasingly through this kind of social mediated processes, right, that, that like we're doing right now, um, I think in a sense, conspiracy theories provide a way of bonding 
if, if you're spending most of your life kind of, you know, looking at a screen, because, yeah. right, this is, you know, and, 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 and so then people can communicate about this. Like, did you see this video, man? This video is the truth, you yeah. know? And then you can start, you know, exchanging insights about it and all the rest of it. And it becomes a kind of bonding exercise, basically, in a world where people are increasingly atomized. That, that is so true. I have a, a, an Uber driver who I, I get routinely is a QAnon guy. And I'm, I'm not, but I, I love to listen to it. And so I get in the car, I'm like, Wayne, how are they lying to us today? <laughs> and his eyes light up because he's, he's happy to talk about it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, it, it's better than sports. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, but, but see, the thing is, uh, I don't think this phenomenon is going to go away. Okay. So this is the, the point. I think the people who say, how are we going to stop this? Yeah. Um, I, I don't think that's the way to approach the matter. Um, I do think, you know, what are, I think with a lot of this stuff, um, and one should not underestimate this, production values are good, okay? So in other words, those videos are slick, right? The kind, you know, people who do this stuff, right? They have some media training. They know how to do this kind of stuff well. And I think the, one of the problems, to be perfectly honest, with the... Um, with the so-called good guys, the experts, technocrats, whatever, um, is that they have very bad production values because they somehow think the truth speaks for itself ultimately, right? And if some knowledgeable guy, you know, just talks for 30 minutes, right, the truth will just reveal itself, you know, to anyone who's, who's got a brain. This is kind of what they think. But it's, that's not how communication works. And, and, and so basically, I think the people on the, on, the, on the truth side, on the expert side, they got to smarten up their act with regard to communication, okay? I mean, there's no intrinsic reason why conspiracy, you know, why, why a, a conspiracy theory has to be the main theory that tries to make sense of everything in the world, okay? <laughs> right? Because that is, right, I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, the, there, there used to be other theories like Marxism, you know, Christianity, whatever, right? I mean, they used to have some pull, uh, you know, and people were very much captivated by those theories, right? Which were not conspiracy theories in any straightforward sense, right? Um, and I think it does have a lot to do with presentation at the end of the day. Uh, and I think that should not be underestimated, um, you know, because people are looking for meaning, right? People are looking for how all this stuff hangs together. It's perfectly reasonable to do that, right? Uh, especially when people feel like, especially in the context of the pandemic, that whatever freedom they thought they had, right, in some ways being taken away from them, right? They're not even able to go outdoors anymore. I mean, I think, you know, under those circumstances, it is not unreasonable for people to wanna find some kind of source of meaning. Um, and because of the, the way the pandemic has disrupted people's lives, uh, I think there is a, a, a kind of an inclination to think there's something wrong here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Some, somebody's doing something to us, you know. Um, and so that's why those who do not, you know, that's why the alternative message uh, needs to be put out at least as, as forcefully. I, I mean, you know, uh, and, and, and the, um, the mean, you know, I think you can learn something in a way from the success of these kinds of videos with these kinds of production values. I, I agree. And, and don't you think it's also sort of hijacking the fact that, um, especially in America, where the breakdown in trust of institutions has not been entirely, um, a lot of it's been due to external events. Like Lyndon Johnson was lying to people in Vietnam. Then you have Richard Nixon who gets kicked out of uh, the White House, and suddenly that institution loses its luster, and right. so on and so forth. And and doesn't doesn't that provide a con a fertile ground for conspiracies to thrive? Yes, and I think uh, one thing you should add to this, because uh, as someone who remembers as a kid Johnson and Nixon um, during that period, so in the late '60s, early '70s, um, the one institution that actually remained with a very high level of credibility was journalism, right. okay? Journalism, in fact, journalism was very much responsible for revealing, right, the issues with Johnson and Nixon, okay? And so journalism was always seen as some kind of trusted authority and so forth. And, we, you know, we're talking about the major network news channels and the New York Times and the Washington Post and place, places like this. And that's why I always, I've always thought that, you know, you know, you know, history will judge Donald Trump as it will, 
but I've always thought that Donald Trump really, really understood something when he took on, when, when, when he started going to the fake news stuff. Because, you know, calling the New York Times fake news, CNN fake news, right? Uh, because that really did do damage. Yes. That, that re if you want to talk about something, you know, because journalism actually had come, had been rather good, uh, you know, in, as a source, you know, and credibility and so forth. But Donald Trump really did a broadside against, against mainstream journalism. Um, and of course, what that does is, you know, if people stop trusting the New York Times and all kinds of people, you know, I could see this in social media, don't trust the New York Times and they don't have, and they don't have to be Trump supporters even. Yeah. Uh, you know, all these alternative news feeds, you know, Breitbart being the, the, the one that really was in the background for Trump, you know, through Steve Bannon, um, you know, that, 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 you know that, that being, you know, now there are millions of these things, right? All, basically these are news feeds that provide alternative takes on the news and very often what they do is they go to the major um, news services, right? Um, and, and then um, respin, right? Because the news services often provide stories in a very basic form, you know, if we're talking about Associated Press or something or Reuters or whatever. Uh, and what they then do is they rewrite it with their spin. And so you can get a very consistent narrative about what's happening in the world spun in certain ways, okay? Um, and, and there's loads of these, there's like, you know, it's customized almost. Um, and so people end up getting a very steady stream of news. It's very comprehensive in terms of all the different kinds of issues that are covered, but it's all spun the same way, right? You know, you get the Breitbart view or, or, you know, one of the, one of the things that's been very, I mean, I don't know if you ever watch, you ever watch RT Russia today? Yeah. Yeah. Russia today. Now that, that those guys. They, they take it to the next level, okay? Um, because it, it, it's quite, everything is spun and it's spun in this, you know, it's like the Joker from Batman when you watch that, when you watch that channel. You get this highly surreal version of things that are going on around the world. Because then when you switch on to the BBC, let's say, and you get this much more sober kind of presentation, right? right? Um, you know, and, and that's that's the world, right? And, and so it becomes very, you know, certain news feeds effectively become vehicles for conspiracy theories just in their normal operation. Well, that's, it's interesting you mentioned uh, Russia because I had a guy on Peter Pomerantsev. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I've been and, on a panel with him. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, who ha has a fascinating background in Russian TV. And one of the things that he talks about, um, and I'm curious your take on, is this idea of, not if you're an authoritarian, not um, convincing people that your opponents are lying, but to just cast doubt so nobody quite knows what the truth is. And at that point, you can just throw up your hands and say, well, uh, I now have license to believe whatever uh, I would I, I would want to believe. Um, well, yes, that's what Russia Today does all the time, by the yes. way. It, it does that all the time. Yes. Um, and and it's really, it, it, you know, and if you think about, you know, if you look at the sort of people who actually uh, front a lot of these Russia Today things, right, they're, they're former comedians. I mean, these are, you know, right, I mean, it is really like Batman's Joker, right, where, which, you know, the, the point of which is to kind of keep you kind of off guard and, you know, and, and you know, not to trust the authorities and, 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 and also to give you, it flatters the audience as well, because as it's kind of getting you off base, it's also making you seem like you're clever, right? Because you see it, you see, you know, yeah. it's not quite what you think, right? Um, and, and they're always like that. Um, and of course, as you say uh, correctly, that in the end, um, they don't tell you what to believe. They don't tell, they, they just leave you in a fog of confusion, which is, which if you are a powerful person already, having people in a state of confusion is not bad, right? That means stasis basically from the standpoint of political action. They're not gonna take anything. They're not, they're not gonna attack you and they're not gonna support your opponents. They're just gonna be in a fog. Right. And that's probably the best way to keep them. And that's, that's part of the reason why this, this post-truth uh, condition, it can be very easily hijacked by bad actors um, and, and be put, even if it's a, a democratization of truth, quote unquote, it, it can easily be put to uh, 
authoritarian use, no? Of course. I mean, but I do think, again, this is an issue about our side, the truth side, whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, just not getting the game. I mean, there's a, there is no reason. See, I, I think the problem is that the, 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 the people, you know, the, the, the people who think of themselves as the experts and the keepers of the truth, they're, they're looking at the issue wrong when they think that somehow you have to get rid of this. What you have to do is you have to play better than they do. Mm. Okay. You have to play better than they do. You have to, you know, you have to play smart. I mean, and this is why I do think there is something to be said. I mean, it's like war, right? I mean, you know, if you studied military history, if you want, you know, if you want, you know, what you do is you're always studying the opponent, right? You're always studying the opponent. You're looking at their strong side. You're looking at their weak side too, but you're looking at their strong side and you're seeing to what extent can you borrow some of what they're doing that is actually enabling them to be effective. And I do think this is kind of the way in which, you know, people on the expert side need to operate. Um, and so when you get these people, these experts who refuse to talk to people, refuse to talk to certain opponents, right? You get a lot of that. We don't want to, you know, provide oxygen for all of these crazy views kind of thing. Big mistake, big mistake. It's almost like a concession, right? I mean, um, the, the, you have to actually deal with them. The important thing is actually to deal with them in public and have people watch it. Mm. I mean, that is, contestation, it is about contestation at the end. Okay. And, it, and, it, and, if the, uh, and if the experts are not willing to go out in the playing field and actually contest and defend what they think they're defending, they will be regarded ultimately as losers. Right. They, you know, it's like a boxer who doesn't defend his title. Yeah. And it's interesting because that is a common belief, especially on, say, like the Democratic side, like don't go on Fox News because you're lending them legitimacy. Like, yeah, it's a big mistake. It's a big mistake. I mean, it's I mean, it's true. You go on Fox News and you, you might be eaten for lunch. Right. By these the, these guys. Right. I mean, so you don't go in there naively. This is the point. You go in there, but you go in there armed. Right. You go in there prepared. Right. And what that means is interesting, right? Because obviously you don't want to come in there hostile and becoming a kind of stereotype democratic fire-breathing socialist or something. You don't want to do that, right? right? Uh, but but so there is a kind of a question of self-presentation in those kinds of contested contexts, okay? But you do it, you do it, and you do it to show you can do it, right? And you, sh- yeah. you know, I, I think this is really, really important. And why do you think, okay, so that, that, contestation not if is there any at what point do you engage with it because there are conspiracy theories out there that if you jump up and down and say this this person's a liar especially if you're someone in a position of authority it almost fans the flame of it no no but this is not the way to do it i mean what you want you don't want you don't make accusations to other people that you're not like the pope you know uh, uttering anathemas or something to cast people from the church. This is not the way you should handle this. What you should do is actually get them in a room with you. See, this is the thing. You have, the whole point about contesting in public, right, according to rules that are agreed upon, is that it presumes that the audience is a fair judge, okay? And that is the best way you can flatter a democracy, right, is by allowing the viewer to see both sides together against each other, and then they take the decision. And that is the frame of mind in which you should enter the matter. You should not be, uh, you know, uttering, you know, disparaging remarks about people from on, you know, from uh, up high, on high, right? What you should do is be right there arguing with them. Um, And then people can judge. They'll see the arguments back and forth. They'll, you know, and they'll make, and people will decide differently, perhaps, right? I mean, it's not guaranteed you're going to win every battle or anything, uh, but at least it shows, right, that you're taking the opponent seriously and you're taking the audience seriously. You're not just lecturing them. Do you think that was part of the mistake of, say, uh, Hillary's campaign and comments like Basket of Deplorables? Oh, I'm afraid so. I, and I say this as someone who favored Hillary against Obama when he ran in 2008 in the primaries. Interesting. I think, I think Hillary Clinton would have been a, a, an amazing president. By the way, she probably would have brought out the army to enforce face masks. <laughs> yeah, so? she would have. She would have. Oh, it would, no. I mean, there would have been riots in the streets for, for different reasons. But the point is, she would have. She would have come down like a 
ton of bricks on this pandemic. Um, but the thing is that, uh, yes, I think uh, the, the answer to your question is yes. Uh, there, and, and in a way, she really, um, she really fit a certain kind of stereotype that Trump was targeting, right? Because she is like the technocrat, the person who said, look, we know what we're doing, you know, and actually sort of touting Obama's record as having been an excellent record and that she'll build on it and all the rest of it, even though there are all these, you know, unemployed, you know, white guys in the Rust Belt who aren't, don't have jobs. Um, you know, so I think it is, and she was oblivious, right? She wasn't even campaigning in those states after a while. Right. Um, and, and so I think, yes, she's an example of someone who kind of really missed the boat, you know, on, on the democracy side of this, which again, Trump, Trump figured out, right? Um, maybe Steve Bannon figured it out for him. But, but the point is that, that Trump got that right. Yeah. Um, and, and I'll tell you, you know, in terms of Biden, um, I think the thing that saved Biden is the common touch. In, in terms of this issue we're talking about now, this is the thing, right? Because right? he's—I think he's intellectually a much more, much uh, less of an impressive figure than Hillary Clinton, much less impressive. But I think he's a much more ordinary guy, right? And a guy who's much more in touch with with the, those kinds of roots that are that are important to uh, win presidential election nowadays. Um, that's where I think the difference was, right? Uh, and, and so he cut into that sort of common man base that would have otherwise just gone for Trump. Well, that's interesting because in, in your most recent book, you talk about that difference between authenticity and sincerity. Where yeah, 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 you can be Donald Trump, where people say, "Hey, he's a he's a blue collar billionaire," which is a hilarious contradiction in terms. But well, that's right. He can he can do it right. He can play it right. Exactly. He can he can he can talk to those people. They'll ignore the fact that he's a billionaire, right? They will just look at him as if he's a guy that they could invite, you know, to the house for dinner, right? Or have a drink in the bar, right? I mean, um, that's right. He he he's authentic in that sense. That's the point. He's authentic. He's you know he may not be sincere. I don't know, but he's he has a, he he can he can pull it off, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and you know Hillary Clinton may in fact have come from a you know a, a lower economic background than than Donald Trump. Uh, but she couldn't pull it off. Yeah, that and that's and you you talk about uh, like actors like you know yeah. uh, doing that same sort of thing like method acting. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing about politicians, right? I mean, um, I mean, we see that. I mean, in 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 the UK, for example, um, where where the vast majority of our of our parliamentarians are still pretty much educated in private schools in Oxford and Cambridge, just like they've always been. I mean, it's a little change, but still pretty much. And, and you know, especially when you compare it to the United States or even other European countries. Um, and yet some of them like Boris, Boris Johnson, our prime minister, this guy, Balliol College, Oxford and Eton and all of that, he's got the common touch. He's got, you know, he's got the common touch. He, no, it, and, and um, you know, and he beat he beat a fire breathing socialist, right? Who was a, you know, uh, you know, for the for, for in the last general election. So it is possible to actually come from this kind of blue blood background, but you can do it. You can play it. And that I, I'm I want to explore this a little bit because it seems to have such huge consequences. Where like Joe Biden, for instance, was a guy who. Uh, was the author of the, this infamous crime bill in the United States that wound up locking up a bunch of African-Americans. Bernie Sanders, there's pictures of him back in the, the 60s of getting arrested at civil rights rallies. But somehow, and I don't know why, I think it's because of Joe Biden was more comfortable, I guess, speaking about these issues and facing African-American audiences than Bernie. But uh, yeah, Bernie was yeah, portrayed. Bernie as, didn't do, he did. He didn't do well with the with the African American. No, he was portrayed as an out of touch white guy. Yep. Yep. How no, does I mean? Well, I do think it has to do. This is where the how he comes across, right? <laughs> Again, yeah. it's this business of how you come across. I mean, I think there's a certain kind of person, you know. So, for example, Bernie Sanders is not for me. Uh, but but I could see a certain kind of person, but it probably wouldn't be a black person who would find right. Bernie Sanders attractive. I think someone who has a kind of nostalgic socialist Marxist thing, which, you know, and, and, and I think it's 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 it, he appeals so much to young, especially young white males, yeah. um, because those young people actually don't know much 
they don't have much experience with Marxism or socialism or anything like that. They, they, they are so, they're like two, three generations away from when the 60s and all of that happened. Uh, but, but, but Bernie Sanders looks like the kind of guy they imagine such a person to be, right? So he fits their imaginary of, you know, what th this kind of 60s-like dude way he talks and, you know, this kind this fulminating style that he has. Um, this is kind of what they imagine. And, and to a certain extent, that, yeah, I mean, he's, he's from that era. So he plays that part, right? Yeah. He plays that part of the aging 60s radical kind of guy who has a, you know, for whom a lot of younger people have, who have a nostalgia for a certain kind of socialism thinks is attractive. I think he probably more so than people of his own generation. Yeah. Because <laughs> they, you know, because they realize what happened with that stuff. It didn't really go anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so w would you say then, as part of this advice to playing the game of post-truth, that especially people like politicians or uh, celebrities who are trying to build a brand, whomever, to is there a way for them to adopt this method acting style and appear authentic? Well, I mean, the point is... <laughs> You know, here's the thing. I, I think method acting is quite a disciplined thing. Um, I don't think you can't just like fall into it. I, th I, I do think that if you're going to be, a, see, here's where the idea of being a professional politician, what is professional about being a professional politician? I think sometimes this phrase gets used just to mean, you know, you spend your whole life in politics, right? Regardless, um, you know, so Biden's a professional politician because he's been a politician for 50 years or something. Um, but no, it's more than that, right? There is a professionalism about politics. Um, and that is that you have to pour your experience into the role of being a politician in a way that, that has the broadest possible outreach, okay? So you have to say, what is it about me, you know, that enable, what is it about my own experience that would enable me to relate to someone with this other kind of experience, right? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so so let's say I don't come from a background of poverty, but I but I am representing poor people. What is it about my experience that I can draw on authentically in the sense that it was my experience, right? But matches somehow what they're feeling, right? It may come from a totally different space in my life from their life, but the but the feeling, the experience may be commensurate in some way. That's the idea, right? So, so, um, and the, and you do the, and you know, so, and, and the politician is someone who cares about who they represent, right? That will be the facade. I see. Okay. And, and as we, we start to wrap up here, cause we're getting mm -hmm. to an hour, I don't want to take up too much of your time, mm -hmm. but one of the things I did want to make sure I asked you about is, um, you refer at one point to hypocrisy, uh, as a performance art. Mm -hmm. Where uh, and and the reason it flourishes is because it's more important to own what you say than That's right. to say what you believe. That's uh, right. Why is that? Well, because I think that what you what first of all, as a psychological point, I think if you're if you're a thinking person, it's always literally speaking, what you actually believe is always a bit up in the air. However, when you are actually in the public sphere, right? Um, and again, this applies very much to uh, to, to politics. Right, you say certain things. You have to, you know, regardless of whether you believe it, you have to, in some way, uh, back it up, live up to it, stand up for it, right? Be responsible for it, right? Uh, and you see, all of those actions that follow the speech, right, do not require that you believe anything in particular. It just means that you are willing to, you know, you know, stand up for it. You're not just, you're not just bullshitting, right? You're, 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 you're taking, you're, you're taking your own words seriously. And that's really what is demanded, is that you take your word seriously. What is it that you actually believe? Who cares? <laughs> right? You can believe anything. You can believe anything. This is why it is acting. Right? Hip remember, hypocrisy, right, comes from, you know, it, it has to do with the wearing of the mask, right? I mean, uh, in the Greek plays, uh, right, where the mask indicates your character and, 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 and you're speaking through that. Uh, and, and that is what it, it means. You follow up what you say in your actions. But what do you believe? You know, do you believe what you've done is right? That's not really, I mean, you might have an opinion on the matter, uh, but it's, that's not really ultimately what's important. What's important is that you've, you walk the talk. That's what's important. It, 
is there um and that's what people care about actually that's what people care about you think so i think people are people i think are much more concerned about people being stand-up guy you know and and actually walking their talk than what they really think or believe i i think so yeah, because, I mean, after all, people like Trump did change his position on abortion, but he was very, once he got into public life or as a politician, he was very firm on that. Yeah, no, that's the thing. I see he gets a lot of respect for that kind of stuff, right? People might think his positions are bonkers or whatever, but, you know. Plows ahead. He plows ahead. God, remember that immigration stuff? My God, he yeah. needed 12 courts to stop him. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it. So okay, um, I, I guess my my last question here is: if it doesn't matter what you believe, if in this post-truth world, hypocrisy uh, becomes a virtue rather than a vice. Well, that's what the founding fathers thought. Let's <laughs> let's be clear about this, right? Part of the context in which I'm talking about this is if you look at the American founding fathers, Franklin and Jefferson in particular, they love hypocrisy. Right. They think the worst kind of politics is the politics of sincerity. Right. Because that means that, you know, basically people people uh, are just, you know, constantly just e expressing themselves. Say, well, you know, I feel this now. I feel that now. Sorry, you can't run a country that way. You have to say stuff and stick by it. And, and it doesn't matter whether you believe it. But doesn't that doesn't that result in a kind of feedback loop if people because on some level, people know, even his supporters will say, hey, I'm not going to rate Donald Trump as the most honest guy on the planet. But doesn't that corrode uh, public trust even further and make this post-truth game uh, just entrench it even more? Or, or are we just so... I, I, th I think this is where the issue of track record becomes important, right? If we're talking walking the talk, then ultimately the ultimate validity test is going to be what is what does the walk look like? What is the track record of following up on your words in certain ways? Do people like that? I mean, do people like the consequences of what you've what you've enacted? Right? Do they like this? I mean, if they like it, why would they care about why you did it, what you really think, et cetera, et cetera? I mean, look, there's a whole look, there's a whole uh, a literature, for example, on, on, on Lincoln's real attitude toward black people, right? right. Uh, but, but he emancipated the slaves, man. That's what mattered. Yeah. Doesn't matter whether he's, uh, whether, you know, whether he thought blacks were inferior to white or what, whites or whatever, that they really didn't matter. I mean, people might find that fascinating to speculate about, right? And, you know, you could think about what, you know, Lincoln's psychology and all the rest of it. But the point is, what matters is that he he emancipated the slaves, right? He did that. Yeah. Okay, so what comes next then? Is it either win, kill or be killed, win this game or, <laughs> or forfeit it forever? <clears throat> well, I think, um, well, I mean, I think one thing, yeah, if, you, if you're really gonna take this post-truth thing seriously, um, the first thing you've got to be concerned about is survival, yeah. um, right? I mean, it's not about winning every game, so there's no reason, you know. But 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 the thing is, you you have to be in the game, right? Um, and and that means you have to understand what the game is, what what kinds of games you have control over, you know, where your framing of a situation could be the dominant one. Under what circumstances are you forced to play somebody else's game, right? Because you can also do well that way too, right? Where in a sense. Uh, you're 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 not necessarily dealing with a matter on your own terms, uh, but but you can still do well on other people's terms. I mean, this happens all the time, of course. Uh, but um, but that's the thing. You have to start thinking a little bit more strategically, um, more strategically than I think we're used to thinking about, especially when we're thinking about matters concerning knowledge and truth, because I think knowledge and truth are usually seen as things that transcend strategy or something, right? Right. right? Um, and, and this is what's denied. Uh, Post-truth condition denies that sort of transcendence. Um, rather, what, we, what ends up counting as knowledge or truth is going to be, yes, relative to the framing 
And the question becomes, how much control over the framing do you have? And if you, you may have a lot of control, you may have no control, you may have some intermediate control. Um, so that's why it's a power game, right? And you just have to be able to, as it were, assess the situation <laughs> properly. Um, yes, it's, it, it is like you know, military strategy. It's not that different in a way. Uh, Steve, I, I, I loved this conversation. It's one of my favorite topics to explore. So uh, is there anything you want to plug before we go? Well, you've mentioned these two books uh, of mine. So Post-Truth is a Power Game, uh, Knowledge is a, Post-Truth, Knowledge is a Power Game, and The Player's Guide to the Post-Truth Condition. The subtitle of that one is The Name of the Game, which is right. what we've just been talking about. The framing is about the name of the game. What is this game about? And that is something that in a way there's always something to play for. Yes. Uh, and, th and those two books are published by Anthem Press. <laughs> okay, get them wherever books are sold, Amazon. Yes, of course, yes. Great. Yes, yes. <laughs> All right, Steve, thanks for your time. Well, thank you, Duncan. Great to talk to you. Great to talk to you as well. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. Bye. Thank you to Steve Fuller, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.